This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Remain standing for the scripture reading, which is taken from Psalm 58. Psalm 58. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart you devise injustice, and your hands meet out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears. That will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before your parts, can feel the heat of the stones, whether they be green or dry. The wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and you are a God who acts, a God who stirs himself to reign and to execute justice in this world. Lord, you and you alone are our tower and our refuge. You are our strength and our fortress. And we pray that in these times of trouble and alarm, you would help us through your word and through your spirit to turn our eyes to you, to find our comfort, our consolation, and our hope in you and the kingdom of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 58, the psalm that Jesse read for us, is a psalm of cursing. It's an imprecatory psalm. It is a song of Outrage. Psalms that we tend to avoid in times of ease and comfort. There are whole chapters in the book of Psalms that embarrass us, that we tend to avoid. And even in some of our favorite Psalms, we find verses that we would rather take out because they disrupt the nice flow of worship and our comforting thoughts. But in times of great evil, we realize how much we need these words of Scripture. Words that despite being written hundreds and thousands of years ago, we can take into our own mouths as we cry out for God to judge the wicked and to rescue those who are weak. We realize we need these psalms when we discover the world is not a nice place, that there are leaders who have no fear of God before their eyes, who use violence and deceit and injustice to take what is not there. And this week we were all 
stunned to witness what we were warned for weeks would happen, but what almost all of us found impossible to believe, the full weight of the Russian military descending on Ukraine with tanks and soldiers and weapon systems pouring across the borders from three sides. This was an act of evil. Someone denying Ukraine its right to exist, the violent expression of a leader who does not care about right or wrong, who only understands poison and bullets, the language of power, a man trying to stomp in Ukraine's face with his boot. And it's rightly an event that has awoken outrage, not just in the West and the rest of the world, but even among many of Putin's own people in Russia. And we need to remember that the writers of Scripture, those people who penned these words, were themselves no strangers to terror and violence and injustice. They knew what it was like to be a small, helpless nation, torn apart by aggressive empires, cities undergoing terrible sieges, refugees fleeing their burning homes. And these writings in the Psalms and in the prophets are a testimony to what it means to seek the face of God in terrible times. Times like our own times, as we all feel a sense of foreboding as to what is being unleashed upon the world. So what does Psalm 58 have to teach us today? How does it help us focus our eyes on the Lord? The Psalm of David, as I said, is a psalm of outrage. It gives us words of righteous anger when we're faced with violence and injustice in the world. And David, the psalmist, is angry because this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And his opening question in verse 1 is a bitter and sarcastic question. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge your people with equity? That is what every human being has a right to expect from their government. Because God established rulers and authorities to execute justice in the land. They're given the sword to punish the wicked, and they have the power to reward the righteous. And we remind ourselves that God is the supreme judge who holds kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers responsible for maintaining what is right in the world. And have these rulers discharged their calling under God? No, says David. In your heart you devise injustice, and your hands are meeting out violence in the earth. These people, instead of understanding their authority as a heavy responsibility under God to bless their people, to protect them, to provide for them. These people use their power as a leverage, as an opportunity to enrich themselves. Because you know what? If you want to commit crime on a truly massive scale, the only way to do that is to seize the machinery of justice yourself, to take on the cloak of power and authority and wield it for your own ends. These are wicked evil people. Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward, spreading lies. 
We worship a God who is true. Every word of his is true. And God is a God of justice because he is a God of truth. But the wicked rely on lies and repressive regimes and authoritarian strongmen depend on ministries of propaganda and social media disinformation campaigns to draw others into their web of deceit. And they cloak their crimes in the name of justice, perhaps even manipulating the church to present themselves as some kind of guardian of Christian civilization, and they cause whole populations to live in untruth. You know, the lie is always central to the operation plan of evil, of the evil one himself, the father of lies, going back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And it's appropriate that in the psalm, Psalm 58, David goes on to describe evil leaders like serpents. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. This is a picture of evil that has broken out of all bounds, that is broken free of its handler. This is evil that is no longer able to be managed or controlled. It's gone past the point of threat or reason. This is an image of unhinged malice. In 1964, the German social psychologist Eric Fromm coined the term malignant narcissism to describe this toxic mixture of grandiosity and paranoia and sadism he called the quintessence of evil. And I'm not going to try to diagnose Putin's psychological state today, but we know that looking behind him to the spiritual realm, all the way back to the evil one who's behind all injustice and oppression in the world, we see the ultimate malignant narcissist. Someone in the grip of grandiose delusions, venting himself through cruelty in the grip of deep fear and paranoia. This is a serpent that cannot be reasoned with, only crushed. And we might wonder, in the face of such evil, what are the people of God to do? And in this psalm, David appeals to God to respond in apocalyptic judgment. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. And this is where we begin to feel a bit uncomfortable with these psalms, don't we? Especially if we come from a place of peace and freedom and comfort. I think it's quite telling that believers who are in situations of oppression and danger and suffering tend to feel little embarrassment in claiming these psalms for their own. If our heart is really aligned with the heart of God, we should feel anger at injustice in the world. And there is something deeply wrong with us if we don't. Fleming Rutledge describes speaking in the, back in the 1970s to a conservative evangelical mission organization that was active in Latin America. And she asked them, how do your missionaries handle working 
in such repressive regimes. And the leader assured her, oh, we make sure to only hire people whose hearts do not boil at injustice. As though the gospel was this purely spiritual, otherworldly thing, and we could blind ourselves to governments torturing and executing their own citizens. If we are close to the heart of God, there are times when we should feel angry because God is angry. Our God hates the perversion of justice. He is the protector of the widow and the orphan and the refugee. And God is provoked to anger by those who assault his image bearers. And if we love God, we have not only the right, but the responsibility to be angry at these things. In your anger, do not sin. But there is an anger that is not sinful. There is a righteous anger, but we need to be careful because that sense of righteous anger is very powerful. And it is also very dangerous. And some of the greatest atrocities in history have been committed by an anger that began as righteous, but it wasn't properly committed to God. And it took on a life of its own and in vengeance and in violence multiplied even greater oppression and injustice. And it's really important to make sure that our anger is directed at the right things, that it's not about our own personal difficulties or inconveniences. I was taking a taxi back from Tbilisi, back to our home this week, and it was late at night, and I was tired and crabby, and I was kind of stewing in in these feelings of anger at what's happening in Ukraine. And I wasn't paying attention, and the Yandex driver missed the exit. He went over the bridge. He had to take a long loop and turn around, and then he missed the exit again. He had to go all the way past Tbilisi Mall, and it was a long 20 or 30-minute detour. This taxi ride cost me 50 lari. I don't think I've ever paid that much for a taxi in Tbilisi. And I was feeling upset in the back seat. And then I felt ashamed at the disproportion of it all. That on the one hand, I'm feeling angry at rockets being fired into apartment buildings and people fleeing for the borders. And somehow, beside that, maybe in a reduced state, but still on that scale, I can put my irritation at a taxi driver taking the wrong turn. That is not a thirst for justice. Just like your kid complaining that it's not fair that their younger sister got the larger cookie, That's not a thirst for justice. That is a thirst for what we want for ourselves. And as we grow in virtue, we begin to care about justice because we care about other people. And the thirst for justice and outrage at injustice is an expression of love for my neighbor. Not just for myself or even for my clan or my nation, but for all human beings Russians included, I might add. But even deeper than our love for our neighbor is our love and passion for the honor of God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Love and faithfulness go before him. Because God is this kind of God, and because he has created the world to be this kind of world, any act of injustice is an offense to God. And violence against God's image bearers is an attack on him. 
And therefore, if God did not respond in just wrath, he would not be a loving God. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, who knew a good deal about injustice and violence, wrote, A non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. God himself would be complicit in the evil of this world if he did not rise up and deal with it. And therefore, God's own honor is bound up with him executing judgment. David is angry because he cares about what God cares about. Understand, these prayers and these psalms are not some kind of magical curse that we can deploy like a nuclear warhead to obliterate our enemies. The question is not, is God on my side or our side? The question is, are we on God's side? In the book of Joshua, in chapter 5, I believe, Joshua the leader of Israel, is standing outside Jericho and he encounters a man standing with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, the man replies, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Because God will not be used He's not going to be harnessed to our interests, our nation, our political parties. He's not going to allow his name to be taken in vain. What God does do is invite us to a greater kingdom, the reign of God in this world, the true king who rules, not by naked power, not by violent aggression, a God who rules by truth and by justice. And what we long for is the victory of this kingdom, a victory so complete that evil is not just defeated, not just destroyed, but actually undone. Notice how David prays that God would make the wicked like they had never existed. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Erasing even the memory of evil. And what we are talking about is a justice far beyond any justice that human beings can bring about in this world. In 2012, Charles Taylor, who was the warlord slash president of Liberia, was convicted of crimes against humanity at the International Criminal Court in the Netherlands. And in the press conference afterwards, the chief prosecutor spoke these words. She said, The sentence today does not replace amputated limbs. It does not bring back those who were murdered. It does not heal the wounds of those who were raped or forced to become sexual slaves. Because even at its best in this world, human justice is limited, it's provisional, 
and very often flawed, leading to a worsening spiral of resentment and vengeance and injustice. Because only God can bring about justice that is not just retributive, but restorative. That doesn't just punish, but also heals. That does not only bring death, but also brings new life. Only God can bring about a justice that actually makes the world right again. Gottfried Backel wrote, No court will be adequate to the things that people are doing to one another. What happens in the world of humanity is from its very beginning a cry for God's judgment. And the first response to that cry, he writes, that is found in the gospel, the good news, is this. This stream of events will not run on forever over blood and victims, goodness, evil, innocence, and injustice. God will put an end to the course of history, and he will make clear that there is a difference between justice and injustice, and that this difference must be demonstrated. God will seek out the buried victims, the forgotten starved children, the dishonored woman, and God will find the hidden doers of these deeds. God alone can and will execute true justice. And therefore, we're misunderstanding Psalm 58 and these psalms of outrage if we read them as expressions of violence. They are actually an expression of a transference of violence. A recognition that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We pray these prayers because we recognize that our anger and our outrage, however justified, are dangerous forces. And so in prayer, we commit ourselves to God, we take refuge in him, and we call upon him to arise and defend our cause. And we renounce violence because we're trusting that God will deal with our enemies far more perfectly, far more justly, far more completely than we ever could. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said that when slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like grass and leave them withering like the green herb. And this is exactly what David expects. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. And the Hebrew there is a little uncertain, a little obscure, but the thrust of what David's saying is not. Because when God arises in judgment, unjust tyrants and repressive dictators and all who do evil will be toppled in a moment. Because God, we should not imagine God as locked in some kind of agonizing death struggle with the forces of evil. They're going to melt away the moment that Jesus returns. And David, despite his anguish, despite his outrage, has no doubt that judgment is coming. Not if, when. 
And for David and for all the children of God, judgment means salvation. There is no salvation without judgment. It means joy and freedom. And the righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. That is a shocking and somewhat ferocious image. But it's also one echoed in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. There will be judgment. There will be wrath. There will be vengeance for all who refuse to repent and who refuse to turn to justice and run themselves onto the sword of God's wrath. Because destruction is the only possible ending for those who resist God. And when that happens, David writes, then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. We need God's judgment to vindicate his own character. Because so long as justice is delayed, so long as God allows these horrors in the world, the problem of evil is open and unresolved. There is no solution to the problem of evil until Jesus returns to make all things right again. Oppression and injustice, tyranny and slavery, these things are not compatible with the love of God. And their existence in the world is not compatible with God's sovereignty and God's justice. And therefore, our most powerful argument as we pray for justice in the world is to appeal to God's own character. And the Psalms teach us to ask, God, how long, how long, God, will you allow these things? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Psalm 94. Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines the nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? Can a corrupt throne be allied with you? A throne that brings on miseries by its decrees? And as the psalmists do again and again, we remind God of who he himself has told us who he is. This is not stuff we're making up about God. We are taking God's word and his own revelation and his own declaration of his character, and we're holding that up before God, and as it were, retorting God's own character back to him and appealing to God to act according to who he himself says that he is. And we plead the glory of God as the most powerful reason possible to bring his kingdom to completion in a fallen, broken, and corrupt world. And so we cry out for the revelation of the perfect justice of God. But it's not quite so simple. Václav Havel was a Czech dissident who spent years in prison in communist Czechoslovakia, and he eventually became the president of that country. And he wrote about what it was like to be in a Stalinist regime and what that did, how that poisoned the whole population. And he wrote that the line between good and evil 
did not run clearly between them and us, but through each person. No one was simply a victim. Everyone was in some measure co-responsible. And many people were on both sides. We need to remind ourselves that actually we are all compromised. We're all enmeshed in systems of injustice. No one here can stand before God and say, I have clean hands and a pure heart. Because it's not just the tyrants who have gone astray from birth. In Psalm 14, David writes, words quoted by Paul in Romans, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And if we open up the furnace of God's justice for others, we will discover that it will burn and consume all of us in its flames. And our only hope for a revelation of God's justice that does not just destroy, but actually brings life, is in the cross of Christ. And there, there's this mystery revealed where instead of God judging humanity, he allows humanity to judge him. And in the four holy gospels, we read about God accused, God condemned, God executed. God loves humanity. He has always loved the human race. But he must demonstrate justice. Because for sin to be defeated, it can't just be ignored. It can't be waved away or put in the closet. It must be dealt with head on at the terrible cost of God's own son. The judge is judged in our place. And Jesus, bound and tortured by the Romans, the violent oppressors of their own day, he stands in solidarity with all in this world who are victims of violence and injustice. But as Jesus speaks forgiveness to those who nail him to that cross, we find to our shock that Jesus also stands in solidarity with the perpetrators. Because the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus stands in the place of sinners. He becomes a curse for us. And the curses of all these imprecatory psalms, all these psalms of outrage, fall on Jesus' bared head. And somehow through that atoning sacrifice, God reveals his justice and his mercy in the world. And we find ourselves both confronted with our own guilt and also miraculously forgiven by God. And therefore, if I can say this, it's like we're rejoicing as we dip our feet in the blood, not of the wicked, but of the one who stood in the place of transgressors and sacrificed himself for the wicked. Because a cycle of vengeance will never heal 
the world. Even divine vengeance. It can only destroy it. But it's only at the cross where we all gather in solidarity with victims and with perpetrators. And we hear God's word of forgiveness. It's only that that brings healing as we learn to forgive each other with God's own forgiveness. This is the miracle of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that says justice and grace are not opposing forces, but they meet each other in the cross. And brothers and sisters, that is the kingdom to which we belong, and this is the message that we proclaim. We need to remind ourselves again today, we are not battling against flesh and blood. This is not ultimately about Ukraine or Russia or even Putin. Our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a dark power behind all evil, all violence, and all injustice in the world. The prince of this world, the devil. And he rules an empire of death. He delights in rapes and killings and screaming children. Those aren't collateral damage to him. That is the whole point. Malignant narcissism. And this is a serpent who is beyond persuasion, who can only be crushed. The kingdom of God, to which we belong, is an existential opposition to the kingdom of Satan. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we take up the weapons that were given, the weakness of the message of the gospel, and the word of reconciliation and forgiveness. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. Empires will rise. Empires will fall. And the faith of many will fail. And therefore, we need to fix our eyes on our King Jesus, seated on his throne at the right hand of God, recognizing that nothing in this world happens apart from his will. And even evil is being bent and redirected to serve his ultimate purposes. Because one day, the rider on the white horse him whose name is Faithful and True, will come, the Prince of Peace and the Prince of Justice, who will defeat all evil. He will rescue the righteous who are waiting for him. And he will usher in a kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, which will never end. So we pray together, come, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads and express that desire to God. Heavenly Father, we groan at the evil in this world. The evil that has always been there, which sometimes rises in crisis to claim our attention and to cause our anger and our outrage. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would establish 
our hearts. Help us not to be swept up in rage and hatred, neither to surrender to cynicism or indifference. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to know ourselves both condemned and forgiven by his cross. And Lord, give us the power in these dark days to speak the word of the gospel, to announce the good news of the kingdom, to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.